Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor of Pitchfork. Today, we're talking to Adrienne Linker. She's an incredible songwriter and the singer for the indie and folk rock outfit Big Thief, which is one of Pitchwork's favorite bands and a regular Best New Music contender. Like the rest of us, Adrienne has had a pretty tough year, but there was a bittersweet silver lining that came from it too. She recorded a pair of beautiful solo records titled Songs and Instrumentals, and both are out today. Before this interview, we asked Adrienne to share some songs and albums that have shaped her life and who she's become, from the records passed down from her great-grandparents to the music that she's been leaning on for hope right now. When we talked over Zoom, she had recently reunited with the rest of the band and was prepping for their first performance in months. You might even hear her bandmates hanging out in the background. They're all in LA now, and we began by talking about Adrienne's cross-country road trip to get there. So how are you? Where are you? I think the last time I asked, you were in Oklahoma driving? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I I left New York State. I was there working on building out a trailer that I'm living in. Mm. And um, I was just renovating it. And uh, hey, so my puppy. Oh, my gosh, new puppy. He's like practicing his bark. (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, I found him on my way. I I was driving out west, and um, Mm -hmm. I found him. I just I was with a couple of friends who whose land I was staying on in my trailer, and uh, the guy was like, I he didn't want the puppies, and he's like, just take take whatever. And I couldn't really leave without bringing him with me. So, but yeah, I went through Oklahoma and and New Mexico, and then came here to. Topanga Canyon to California to meet up with my bandmates. So the the trailer is functional. Yeah, it's my little house. It's just like a little like twelve foot trailer that um, was like from the sixties that was kind of falling apart, and um, I just like remodeled it with a friend, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, after I was with my bandmates on the East coast. And then after that, I just stayed in the Catskills and worked on this thing. Cause I wanted to have a little home and I'd been living on the road for the last six years or so. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's still living on the road in a way, but it provides a little bit of consistency. Like I have my own bed now. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And I've got Oso. So it's just like kind of taking this opportunity to make a little home space. That's so nice. Can you tell us a little bit about 
how music came into your life with your parents and your early childhood. Just what part in your life did music play when you were very young? Um, well, my very first experience of music was my dad singing and playing. Um, he played guitar and piano and um, was always writing songs. And I think he was doing that. Yeah, he was doing that from before I was born. So just being around that vibration, mm -hmm. I think I was soaking it up. And then the very, very first music that he introduced me to, and that it's like in our home videos when I'm like one, two years old, uh -huh. I'm like spinning around the living room listening to Pat Metheny. <laughs> I love that you chose Bright Size Life because it does have it does have all of these hot tips to the Midwest and and traveling and these homages to the Midwest. Mm. But it's it's also just smooth jazz. Like yeah, it is totally. a lullaby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's also crazy. Like what mm -hmm. he's playing. It's 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 smooth, but it's also so wonky. It's really comforting to me. It just like brings me right back to, uh, yeah, to being a kid. I think specifically, yeah, like the guitar parts are mm. so full of melody, and they sound like a real, like a live animal. Mm -hmm. Just like da 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 It's like so like I think I felt like it was a creature I could follow yeah. into the woods and like see what they were exploring. And like you know, like just it's it's very engaging if if you're just if you have no associations with like as you're when you're a kid you're not like, "Oh, this is smooth jazz" or like, "Oh, this is this genre." You're just like hearing it and it's pure yeah. form and I think like the notes all of the notes and melodies really excited me. There's this great clip from an old documentary with him uh, from the 80s where he has recorded all of these barnyard animals and then he's made them into instruments for himself to record with. Whoa. So he's like playing the wolf as backup singers and playing wow. the donkey as a guitar. I've um, never seen that. That's cool. It, it's a it's crazy clip, uh, but it's interesting that you you're parallel to him making this kind of like animal reference, exploring the woods, and he simultaneously <laughs> was clearly trying to capture that emotion yeah. in an instrumental sense. Yeah, I think he he was just an explorer, which yeah. is what I like with the guitar, and like I f fell so deeply in love with guitar when I was from like a really early age. Yeah. Like I asked my dad to show me how to play it when I was six. And yeah, for, for whatever reason that the resonance of, of that instrument, like is so exciting to me. And I like that with instruments you can explore with relatively small consequence. Mm -hmm. It's like this place you can be free and you can play any notes and nothing's going to happen. 
Like, it's, right. like you can just do what you want and explore what you want and put together these clusters of notes and make shapes and like find things that make you feel really happy and find things that make you feel really sad and explore all these different emotions in a, in like a safe space. Yeah, totally. So you wrote your first song when you were eight. And mm-hmm. then I was reading this Stereogum interview with you where the song that you wrote at, when you were 10 was called So Little Life. Yeah. And... I, I'm wondering what you were listening to yeah. that that inspired you to write that at so, as song. Um, I think that kids, they just feel it all. They know it all. They see it all. I was listening to my parents. I was listening to, like, bugs and, like, like my the furniture in our house. And I was listening to, like, you know, the little dark corners that were, like, kind of freaked me out like what's what's over there like I think I felt a heaviness and kind of an urgency at a young age to I needed a place to deal with all the things I was absorbing and Mm -hmm. all the things that I was feeling because it was so much it's funny that that was the beginning of the songwriting because I always I often feel like I'm just working on making the same song. Like I've been working on writing about the same things since I was a kid. And it just keeps getting like more, you know, refined or yeah. Just curiosity about existence and fascination for existence and the inherent duality in the physical realm. And like, I basically have to speak and write through my feelings and my perceptions but sometimes those things can feel so limiting. Like yeah. my, I only have my perspective and perception, which makes it so that I can't really tell the story of anyone else. It's not really like my place to. So I can only grapple with the things that are happening through my own lens. Yeah. But like in a place of so much reckoning with ourselves and our systems and our structures, it's a really specifically intense time to be writing and trying to create anything because it's like I almost I feel like I've been having to like pull apart who I am and what part of me has been conditioned well I mean I think I think it's interesting that a record that you you spoke of having influenced you or having been important to you as a child whilst you were writing these songs about the conditions of existence (laughs) is Iris Dement's infamous angel And my first question is, how did you come across this record? And then what captured you about it? Yeah. So my great grandma, Sunny, I was very lucky to get to know her until I was 20, 19 or 20 when she passed. So I was really close with her. And um, that family listened to that record a lot. But especially it was Brian, my great uncle, Brian, who I never really got to know. He passed away because of cancer he was a sculptor and so he was like this he's like this force of artistic presence in my family but who I never really got close with but he was listening to that album on repeat in his last Mm -hmm. um in his last weeks in his last days while he was making sculpture Mm -hmm. and I my grandparents had the cd and I just, when when I heard it, something just, like, ignited, like, something just, like, lit up inside of me. And I, it, and I became so obsessed with 
with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that album, I feel like it grapples with the human condition and it's very skeptical about religion and spirituality and the afterlife. And I mean, it was basically right up my alley. Like, yeah. a lot of sentimentality about, like, like that song, Our Town. Mm-hmm. Like, and so, like, dramatic, but I loved the drama. I'm leaving tomorrow, but I don't want to go. I love you, my town. You'll always live in my soul. But I can see the sun setting fast. And just like they say, nothing good ever lasts. I'm like 12 years old. I'm like, nothing good ever. Oh, my God, this is so good. <laughs> I'm like, finally, like, I, yeah, I didn't want to hear the, like, the, the, the fake happy. Yeah. I was just like, no. Like, and I feel like kids are hardcore like that too, like of this generation. Yeah. They're like, no, the world's not like that. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't look like a fairy tale. It's, I want to, I want, give me something that that's like real that I can actually, that can help me feel what's actually happening without sugarcoating it. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot of like big life philosophizing in that record. <laughs> I mean, just like a, a beautiful album that's grappling with all of these things that are so much a through line of some yeah. of your music. I mean, Terminal Paradise, the opening of that, to me, feels like this cosmic through line to this record. See my death become a trail And the trail leads to a flower I will blossom in your sail Every dreamed and waking up Wow, I, it's... That's cool to think about. I haven't really thought about how those things are still totally, like how deeply they influenced me and affected me. Mm-hmm. And they're so at play still. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. Just looking at death, not not in a lighthearted way, not like, oh, it's just death. We all just die. Like definitely not diminishing it because it's some, something that is scary. It's something I do find to be very scary. And I think that's yeah. why... I think that's why I'm pushing into it a bit because mm-hmm. I, I tend to like, if there's something I'm afraid of, I like want, I want to like somehow learn more about it. <laughs> right. I also wonder if there's, um, and I'm fully, this is me like theorizing. So feel free to tell me I'm insane. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also am drawn to the fact that that is very much kind of a family of the family folk tradition, you know, like it follows the Carter family lineage and it was brought to you by your great grandparent. Um, Mm. Has that kind of influenced you or, or like resonated with you? The, the family folk tradition? Um, Not in like a, not by, not by like true definition yeah. but in the sense of in the sense of yeah i guess it just being kind of passed down to me um i remember my my great grandma had this basket of instruments like percussive instruments and a piano and a tw- tw- uh, 12 string guitar and like all of these instruments and when we would go over there part of what we'd do is just like hang and like mess around with the instruments together and like my father taught me guitar and 
and it was definitely like present in my family and music there was like an importance drawn to music as like a way of storytelling and and also just as a way of experiencing life and yeah do you play music um not anymore i i went to like study flute mm. and then i realized i wasn't very good at it huh. and gave it up how come you felt not good at it I think, you know, I think I was very good when I was younger. And then when I started being around folks who were kind of classically trained in a different way, um, and it was highly, highly, highly competitive, hmm. it it felt like a different thing to me. Yeah. Do you think that, like, the idea of being good at something or, like, good at an instrument, like, do you think it was, like, kind of sm smashed for you because of that system that you were like m measuring yourself against like in another lens do you think you would have just continued <laughs> to play if you hadn't yeah yeah I think so I feel like community and like experience with how you're being I guess how educated with your instrument can affect your desire to continue with it so much like I saw that happen at Berkeley I went to Berkeley in Boston yeah. when I was 17 and I felt like so there was such so much pressure in that environment in a lot of ways mm -hmm. to conform to this certain curriculum or this certain type of understanding music. I feel like I actually watched that just crush a lot of people. Yeah. But yeah, like there's so there's so much freedom to be had in just the sheer enjoyment of making music even if you're just even if you barely know anything at all. I feel I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's talk about, like, education and music, right? Yeah. So you had worked on two records before Berkeley with your father, mm -hmm. which I know in itself was kind of moving in a direction musically which you were, were becoming less interested in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I got my GED when I was 16. I didn't go to high school ever, and, and my education was essentially, like, being in studios and like mm -hmm. making music and um things just got intense and messy with my dad and he was cuz he was managing me and um you know I was also simultaneously trying to like find my autonomy and identity right. as a as a human as a person right. outside of my parents and um and so I had made these records one of them was released when I was like 13 and then one of them I decided not to release when I was 15, because I had started listening to like Leonard Cohen and like Elliot Smith and all these things. And what we had been making was, were basically these pop productions. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this isn't, I don't want to make music like this. Yeah. And so I just kind of like rejected that. And um, when I like think about those records, I don't really, 
even consider them to be like my first records. Right. I look at it as like, like if you were to look back at like a school project you made when you were 14, <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily be like including that in your body of work. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my diorama of, of space. Yeah. What was that experience like coming from being home educated to being at Berkeley with everyone studying the thing yeah. that you were passionate about? It was it was really cool. I remember feeling really liberated. What got me excited was being around other kids, other students of music, playing after school hours in mm-hmm. practice spaces all night, getting jacked up on caffeine, like just like playing songs, like trying to write stuff, trying to make stuff, like practicing drum rhythms, like practicing polyrhythms for Mm -hmm. like hours, zoning out to just like, just like really nerding out on music, you know, just like getting excited and making stuff and learning how to like do my laundry in a laundromat and (laughs) like just basically life things, you know? I feel like when we're when we're teenagers, this happens universally, where we begin to find our own music and find our own people. Um, how did you come across Elliot Smith? Like, what was the the intro to Elliot Smith? And you mentioned either or was a pivotal album for you around then. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, what was your introduction to that? Yeah, my first boyfriend. Well, I guess I had a boyfriend in eighth grade, but he was—he was like my first actual boyfriend. Much cooler I mean, than I was. <laughs> I was going. I aspired I'd, for a boyfriend. <laughs> girlfriends, boyfriends, all over the place. No, but no, I—I—I I, I think I was just kind of—I was a bit wild. I don't know, but um, I—I mm-hmm. I kind of was like getting into trouble a little bit. But anyway. Yeah, I what kind of trouble. Uh just like parties I really shouldn't have been at and like just out all hours of the night type of vibe. Classic teenager. Roofs, lots of roofs. Um things like that, you know. <laughs> Experimentations. <laughs> but yeah, he he uh he gave me a CD of Elliot Smith stuff and I remember listening to it. And just being like, this is so cool. Mm-hmm. It just inspired me and blew my mind. And still does. Like, that poetry. Yeah. The poetry on that record. And then also just the sonic quality. It's, like, so organic and raw, but somehow also so soothing. is a a record that really brings me into introspection that's not always super comforting i guess Mm -hmm. i had the lyrics to between the bars taped (laughs) taped to my bedroom oh wow (laughs) 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 which is um what i'm calling classic teenager bullshit um oh man but it's so good (laughs) but one was certainly not going to bars and you know thinking about the passing of time with a romantic partner between them. but Do you know what? I had never thought of it as bars, like bar bars. Like You thought about the, it as bars, like music bars? I thought, no, I thought about like jail bars. Drink up, baby, look at the 
That's how I've always thought of it. It's been my picture, like, like I'll kiss, like between the bars, like kissing someone from on either side of a pri- like a prison cell. One of us is possibly right, but I like every, I like that yeah, we've grown up way. with different imaginations of it. That's why it's a cool lyric, I guess. But one thing I wanted to ask you about Elliot Smith is that obviously there was so much about his music that I think kind of blurred the lines between what was narrative and diaristic and what was observational and, and about other people and, and scenes that he had observed. And he was so good at that. He was really great at writing characters, you know, in his music. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of people see that in your writing because you give names to, to people that might be yourself. It might be someone else. Um, Do you feel that kind of like kinship or anything from his music? I mean, in the way that you described it, now that you've said it like that, yeah, I, I, I haven't actually thought of that or like aspired to that. But I, I feel like when when you describe it like that, I can see that it just makes me think about characters. And I mean, I feel like everything that I write is is nonfiction. Like it's it's not like I'm just making things up out of thin air. Like I have to write from a place that I feel deeply in my guts, and it's. And yeah, many of the characters that appear are just names for different facets of myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's some part of the blurring that happens is that like some of the characters aren't necessarily just play pretend characters that you're right. or just characters you're trying on. It might be just like a really real aspect of yourself that feels like another person. I miss in music these days, I miss like some of the raw stuff that was going on in like the 90s and like early 2000s and just like uh, um, unapologetic dramaticness. Yeah. And like some of the way that lyrics were or the way that something was sung. But uh, I think maybe it's also partly a production thing too. And I I wonder if that is just because production is there's like more accessibility to to like yeah. sheen now than yeah. there once was. Not that there's anything wrong with sheen at all cuz that has its beauty too. Yeah. It is just like the stuff that I feel like is the most raw that's happening right now feels like it's all in hip hop or something like that. Like the things that are just like the most like just grab like just like grab me and just like it's like whoa holy this is flipping my perspective. I feel like a yeah. lot of that is happening in like rap and like hip hop music. So we've talked a lot about your childhood, but I'm curious what happened after you left Berkeley when you first arrived in New York and met Buck. Mm. From my understanding or my remembering, you basically were just like, I'm going to show up and figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I, for a long time while I was in school, I had it in my mind that, of course, I'm going back home to Minnesota after this. Like, Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go and, and then it occurred to me in my last year of school, wait, 
am I going back to Minnesota? I wanted to sink my teeth fully into just, I just wanted to dig fully into music mm-hmm. and the, just that discovery. And I felt like pulled to New York because yeah. there, it was a place where you could play a show um, supposedly any night of the week, like multiple nights, multiple shows. Like you could, <laughs> you could just be busy with music. Plus you could see shows everywhere and it was kind of this even leveling ground where people who were like super recognized and famous were all just playing in a room with people who maybe no one had ever heard of. Yeah. And it was just this like, even things out and you could see a legend just playing at like this little bar somewhere like, and that was really exciting to me. So yeah, I basically just went there and found the first place I I could find that was like under $500 a month <laughs> and uh, lived in the, yeah, lived in like a little warehouse there and got a, I got a, a job and then I, yeah, had like multiple different jobs all up until Big Thief left for tour. And what were you listening to when, around that time? You mentioned Leonard Cohen and New Skin for the Old Ceremony. Yeah, Leonard, I was listening to Leonard Cohen a lot. You know, that's when I got the tattoo when I was 21. Mm-hmm. I moved to uh, Brooklyn, and I don't know how many folks out there remember Hurricane Sandy, but when that happened, um, I was holed up in Brooklyn, and, like, that's when I got this stick and poke tattoo on my arm. What's um, it of, for those who are listening? It's a lyric from Suzanne. What's the lyric? <laughs> <laughs> I can't say. You're just going to have to sneak a read. No, but it's it's actually, okay, it's all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them. He said all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them. But he himself was broken long before the sky would open. And I wish it wasn't gendered now. I'm like... Why is it all men will be until? Mm-hmm. But anyway, I think it represented to me, it was like a built-in like epitaph or something. Like It was like if stuff goes crazy and just like falls apart and this whole place floods, like, I don't know, maybe when the body dissolves, it's a form of great freedom. I don't know. And it was just like very, you know, like, yeah, like, some 21-year-old bullshit. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> like, but, yeah, I don't know. It's a tattoo. It just represents, like, where I was at the time. I'm trying to think what else I was listening to. I met Buck when I first moved there. Um, I was sleeping in the warehouse, working in the Upper West Side. I met him the first day I moved there, and he showed me John Prine. Ain't funny how an old broken bottle Looks just like a diamond ring But it's far, far from me And we started singing John Prine songs together. He also showed me... Um, also a huge a huge fan of Iris DeMent, John Prine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's kind of part of our bonding was like, I was like, oh, here's, a, here's a country person I know, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> and... Uh, and actually showed him Iris DeMint. He had never heard of her before. But, um, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, Fleetwood Mac. Like, I feel like Buck also, like, reintroduced me to Fleetwood Mac in a way that was like, oh, whoa, this is actually really amazing. Some of this stuff. 
Were you not sold <clears throat> beforehand? Mm, I feel like I had only like ever heard stuff in passing at like a Walgreens. <laughs> so you got reintroduced to Fleetwood Mac? Yeah, which got reinforced by Big Thief forming and I got obsessed with Tusk. Mm. <laughs> um just yeah, the production, the like songs. Okay, so before we get into the new album, I really wanted to talk about that concert video you sent us. Yeah. It's from the classic Nina Simone performance at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1976. Yeah. And in it, she does this incredible medley of the song Stars and Feelings. And I think something that's really telling about that clip is that they aren't her songs. Stars is by Janice Ian, and Feelings is by Morris Albert, and was hugely popular at the time. But in this clip, they feel like they're her songs. Like, no one else can own these songs like she can. Exactly. No, I mean, honestly, when I saw that, it changed my whole perception of music, performing, existence. It's just this feeling when you're, like, observe, you're witnessing something, and it it feels otherworldly and it just feels like the absolute essence of like anything to strive, like to strive for, move toward like absolute inspiration and just like the amount of bravery and in the music and also just uh virtuosity, like the eff- the effortlessness and yet the like, conviction and passion. But but somehow it's seeming so second nature. Like, I just felt like I had never seen such an amazing musician before. Yeah. And just like, just and every word sung with like you can feel the meaning bursting forth from each word and each breath teardrops falling down on my face trying to forget all my feelings of love is there anything that you have that you are currently listening to that provides solace or hope or optimism? Hmm. Um, yeah, there's this one artist that I feel so deeply about. <laughs> I feel like he's my favorite living songwriter. Um, the band, it, it's called Twain, T-W-A-I-N. If you just really listen to the words, I feel like there's a lot of hope in those lyrics. Just the level of like consciousness in, in that writing. Um, yeah, do you think your mind, do you think your mind is but a lady? Do you think your mind, do you think your mind is but a man? Well, I know my mind And it never knew the difference between the two Till they say, hey you, this is what you are I know my mind. He's writing stuff like that, and he sings so beautifully, and he records everything to tape. And, you know, he's, like, 
<clears throat> I've played shows with him since I first moved to New York, but like I just champion him because like he's yeah uh, such a profound songwriter and uh, yeah his music brings me a lot of hope. I, it's nice to have those those things in these times to get to the new album. You mentioned that that the music that is most meaningful to you or to us in general, like when we were talking earlier, is the stuff that kind of grabs you from the inside and by the guts. Mm. How did how did you go about kind of channeling that with this record in particular? I had no choice. <laughs> like it didn't feel like I could control how it was coming out. Um, this record in a lot of ways feels like the most personal thing I've ever made. We were just going through real loss. Like, I mean, it was just me and Phil who was recording it, who's Mm -hmm. one of my best friends. And, you know, he was losing his grandmother saying goodbye over Zoom, like, as we were recording, like, she was passing away. And then also I was going through the sort of like death and transformation of like a relationship. And I guess, you know, I was like really heart. I felt very heartbroken. Mm -hmm. Um, And then simultaneously, there's just all this collective grief, confusion, anger, like, you know, like all the police brutality and like the deaths of so many people who shouldn't have died. Like and and I'm not going to claim that this record is addressing that in any way. Um, it just basically deals with my own personal understanding and grappling with all all of this feeling of grief, like basically like pain, and and from a place of like internal like heartache, and then also, you know, I was I was separate from my partner through the pandemic, but like even from prior to the pandemic, from just touring and stuff. Yeah. We've been apart for like five months. Basically, I, even aside from the relationship, I went through a personal kind of breakdown like during the course of making that album because yeah. I hadn't I hadn't stopped in like six years um, touring. Yeah. And, and so when I did stop, all this stuff surfaced that I had never processed. And, um, and I actually like, I got really sick and like, um, not non-COVID related, but like I, I ended up like in the hospital and like I was. I'm sorry to hear that. It was hard, but like the music felt like a, a sanctuary. The music felt like a place where I could go, that I knew that was familiar to me. That was one of the <coughs> oldest companions that I've had throughout all of life since I was yeah. six years old or four years old. You know, just like that's what I know to do when things feel crazy or hard or huge and beyond my own comprehension. I turn to music. Do you feel some relief with it coming out? Do you feel some anxiety? Time time is a healer, I guess. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the classic cliche, but 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 yeah, time time has been so hopeful. And yeah, like I had kind of said before, it's like once I write about it and look at it, it does immediately ease some of the pressure because it's not just there in the room with me or like I'm not avoiding it. I didn't yeah. know how I'd come out the other side. Like, I felt really, really worn down um, for many reasons that I won't even describe because it's honestly just too personal. But mm. I went through a time. And yeah. these songs were the thing that, yeah, helped helped lift me out of it. 
and helped me feel like self-soothed and just like, it's okay. Like, it's okay. Like everything is living and dying. Everything is scary. Like, and there is, you know, but like, but it's okay. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's deeply powerful for other people to be able to hear the kind of back and forth that happens there. Like the beauty and the pain and the messiness of it all together at once. Mm. Honestly, the first song released from this album, which is titled Anything, really struck me. It has these really intimate lyrics that describe really specific scenes in a relationship. There's a longing and a sadness in it that's extremely moving. It's kind of one of those songs that really does hit you right in the gut. Well, thank, thank you. You know, I heard a lot. I mean, it's hard. It was hard to even know whether to release it in these times because there's so much important information circulating, and I didn't want to clog the. I don't think music is a clog, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the yeah. one thing that that isn't you know, poisonous. I feel like that, like, it's just an offering. It's not like shoving it down someone's throat, but it's just like, yeah. this exists. This helped me. Maybe it could like be of some assistance to you. Yeah. If not, no worries. You don't have to listen to it. And like, I honestly would have made it even if I never even put it out. Probably. I, I just, I felt like I had to make it. Thank you so much. Oh, <laughs> genuinely. Thank, thank you. you so much for chatting. Um, Likewise, thanks for your, like, it's nice to have a real conversation. and Yeah, of course. Um, the album is beautiful. I'm looking forward to the new Big Thief, as always. Thank you. If you want to hear the songs we talked about on this episode, check out our Spotify playlist. It's called The Pitchfork Review, Music from the Podcast. And if you need some other new music, give us a call at 917-524-7371. Leave us a voicemail and Pitchfork's music critics will try to recommend you something new. Again, that number is 917-524-7371. We'll play a few of your messages and suggest some new music on an upcoming episode. The Pitchfork Review is hosted by me, Pooja Patel. Thanks to Adrienne Lenker for coming on the episode. You can follow her on Twitter at Adrienne Lenker. You can follow me at Sonari. You can follow Pitchfork on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pitchfork. This episode was produced by Ben Montoya and Caitlin Pierce. It was edited by Todd Whitney, Andy Cush, and Alex Kappelman. Our original music is by Andrew Epen of Basement Crafts. This episode was mixed and scored by Ben Montoya. Special thanks to Amy Phillips and Pitchfork's Big Thief Hive. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. You can also send an email to podcast at pitchfork.com with any feedback. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through of Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through of Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.